right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got time to say. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on KLWN. Later today, we're going to be giving away some free tickets to the Sporting KC 2 match on Friday. We will... uh, have that available on our social media at RCST1320. We're also going to do a uh, caller to win segment coming up at, oh, I don't know, like 425, 430, something like that. So be on the lookout for that. We have Ike Para, who is an assistant coach of Sporting KC, too. He's going to join the show at 4 o'clock. We've got some audio to share for you from Grady Dick. And Kevin McCuller, we're also going to be joined by Michael Swain of Fog.net coming up at 440 to talk KU football recruiting. Um, I did want to make quick mention of this. We're going to go more in-depth. We're going to talk more about this in the second segment here. KU does have a new baseball coach, so I wanted to at least mention that. Dan Fitzgerald, he was an assistant. He was a recruiting director at LSU. Uh, Like I said, we'll go further in-depth in the next segment, but seems like a very good hire. Uh, so with that said, uh, let's get into our next deep dive. We only have uh, a couple of these left. We did uh, MJ Rice yesterday. If you missed it, you can check it out on the Best of RCST podcast. We just have Grady Dick, Jalen Wilson, and today we're doing Kyle Cuff. Cuff redshirted last season, came in 118th ranked player in the country, according to the 24-7 sports composite in that class of 2021, he was the 31st ranked shooting guard. Officially, he was listed as a combo guard, six foot two. We've seen KU have all sorts of success with guys like that, combo guards who maybe aren't rated in the top 40 or top 50 of the country, but they develop into something in the long term, and KU ends up getting you know long term stud. Whether we saw it with Devonte Graham or Frank Mason or Tyshawn Taylor, on and on and on, the list goes on. Um, but lots of athleticism, lots of scoring ability. This is the scouting report that was done by Jerry Meyer of 24-7 Sports on Kyle Cuff when he was coming out of high school. A tad undersized as a scoring or shooting guard, but is an extremely explosive athlete. Makes myriad plays defensively and is a major threat finishing at the rim and in transition. Excels in a fast open game much more than a slower constricted game. Loves to get to the rim as a slasher. Finishes with either hand against contact. He needs to develop his pull-up game. Does have a quick release on the catch and shoot from deep and shows some potential as a shooter. A playmaker primarily for himself. Has room to improve as a distributor. Is a strong rebounder for the position. Can be a terror on the defensive end with his explosive athleticism. So you go through that scouting report and basically what you come out with, he's very athletic. Um, He's more of a streaky shooter, but he definitely can hit there and, and has potential there defensively he has potential because of the athleticism but maybe that stuff is a little bit more raw as is the distribution game um so the projection also there lists him as eventually being a power five starter the lone KU venture that we saw Kyle Cuffin it was the exhibition game against Emporia State 
He played seven minutes. He went one of three from the field. He was 0 of 2 from three. He had two points, two turnovers, and two fouls. That is such a small sample size in a freshman's first ever game. I don't really even want to ever discuss it again. So uh, let's be done with that. Um, the swing skill, though, seems to be shooting and defense, as I mentioned. And stop me if you've heard that before, because that has been the case for <laughs> like everyone we talk about. But obviously, those are two important skills to have in basketball to begin with. Um, defense has been less of a swing skill for a lot of the guys we've talked about. You know, for some of the big men, maybe it is, or, or guys who are unproven there. But for like KJ Adams and you know Kevin McCuller, those aren't swing skills. We know those guys are good defenders, but shooting is, and and. It's not just that that's a very important basketball skill and you can never have enough shooting. It's that that is one of the bigger questions coming into the year for this team. Um, but there's less pressure on him, I think, to because, again, if that's more of a question of cerebrally having everything click in the Bill Self offense for the game and being a facilitator, being a passer, being a lead point guard, those are questions that you, you see from the scouting report. But those aren't things that I'm really concerned about because when you look at the role that he could potentially play for this season. We know Dewan Harris is going to play a boatload of minutes. It could be 30, it could be 35 minutes a game. There's only going to be a handful of minutes as the backup point guard. So most often what's going to happen, whoever is the other, I guess, lead guard, the other combo guard, whatever you want to call it amongst that group of Kyle Cuff, Joe Yasifu, Bobby Pettiford, whoever's kind of the leader in the clubhouse there, like a lot of that guy's minutes are going to play as the off guard next to Dewan Harris. And from that standpoint, yes, you do still have to do some facilitation and, and passing, but it becomes less of an importance. So I'm not overly concerned about that as far as the, the role and, and the skill goes um, this year. As far as realistic floor, realistic ceiling, I, I think the floor is, it's just, it, it's tough to crack the rotation and beat the current guys on the depth chart. So basically like you'll get the Bobby Pettiford um, feel that he had last year. Yeah. And, and maybe, I don't know. You know because, pre-injury, I should say. Well, and, and even then like pre-injury, Bobby Pettiford was, he was the third guard is still getting, you know, five, 10, maybe 15 minutes in a game. I think you're looking at what Joe Yesifu was prior to the Bobby Pettiford injury. Okay. So prior to the Bobby Pettiford injury, Joe Yesifu was the fourth guard. And we would see Joe Yesifu come in every now or then, a few minutes here or there. Mostly in late game situations Correct. where KU's already up or down by a bunch, which we didn't really see the down by a bunch a whole lot, but you get what I mean. Right. Because that's that's the problem you run into here. It's not a knock, I think, against Kyle Cuff. I, I, I think you like the kid's potential when you have that much athleticism. It just might take a little bit longer, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be something where everybody has to be good right away or has to impact things right away. And, and I'm sure from his standpoint, he probably does view it as like, I want to have an impact right away, and he should have that view because you want to be competitive like that. Um, it just it, It's hard. So if we're talking, you know, ceiling is a different question. I'll get to that in a second. But if we're talking floor of what that could be, yeah, the floor is that we know Dewan Harris is going to be the guy at point guard. Joe Yesifu and Bobby Pettiford beat him out, which, like, that's not that's not crazy to say because I think what we saw, Kyle Cuff obviously redshirted this past year as a freshman. If Kyle Cuff was ahead of Bobby Pettiford coming into the season at the season's start, then it probably would have been Bobby Pettiford redshirting, right? Or, right. or even if Bobby Pettiford didn't want to redshirt, then it wouldn't have been Kyle Cuff redshirting is my point. 
Joe Yesfu was ahead of him probably on the depth chart as well. And I get it. Things can change. Like, um, he's a young player. Maybe he improved more than those other guys. Or, or maybe because of the injury, Pettiford didn't get as many chances to improve. And maybe he's at a different point now than where we were last year. But the point is, it's not crazy to say that those other guys would be ahead of him. And, and yes, hypothetically, like all four guys could play or play a small role. But again, if we if we go into the rotation equation, seven or eight guys are going to play for self. Even if we bounce it out to nine guys over the course of the regular season, we already have locked in Dewan Harris, Grady Dick, MJ Rice, Kevin McCuller, Jalen Wilson, two centers. That gives you six right there, right? Um, and then, or did I do the math right? Seven. No, it's seven. Yeah, okay. So that's seven right there. And then whoever the second string guard is, whether it's Yesfu or Pettiford or, again, Cuff, that's eight. Now is the ninth guy going to be a wing? Is it going to be another center? Is it going to be, you know, like K.J. Adams kind of playing a flex of both? Would it be a third guard? The point is, even if you do have the third lead guard, there's not room in that rotation for four lead guards. Right. And that, that's going to be the issue. You know, there's going to be a lot of, you know, playing time to come around, but only distributed so much. That's going to be the issue. So that is the realistic floor there that he, um, if if you're fourth on the depth chart, it's it's not a knock against you as a player. It's just that other guys happen to be in front of you right now. I think um, a stretch floor, which is um, kind of realistic but kind of not, would probably be to redshirt him. That might be we the, just redshirted. Oh, doy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, Pettiford, Richard Pettiford, and possibly give Cuff some playing time. I guess that's more of a stretch, possibly. I don't know why I totally forgot that Cuff Richard. <laughs> well, so you saw Cuff um, at the the KU scrimmage, yeah, whatever that was a week ago, something like that. Um, what were kind of your thoughts on on what he could provide and and bring to the table? Well, he didn't have a whole lot of pull up shooting, just mainly just driving inside and finishing, which he did great some points. He struggled with at others, but. I think overall he could prove to be something, you know, really great. I just don't think it's going to happen this year, unfortunately, just because of the amount of talent that this Kansas roster has. Because that's exactly what we saw in the scrimmage was that that talent that Kansas has, especially in the guard spot with Yesifu, you know, he had 30 points in the in the 20-minute um, scrimmage. And Cuff, I think he ended up with about six or seven points, most of those just being layups. Um, and he, he could rebound the ball well. I'll give him that. For a 6'2 guy, he could rebound the ball well, but, you know, with the talent that the guard spot has, it's going to be hard for him to score, let alone get playing time. Well, let's get to the realistic ceiling. Um, You know, the realistic ceiling there is that things do click, and, and maybe Bobby Pettiford coming back from the injury, maybe it slows his progression a little bit. Uh, Maybe... You know, you like more of what the the size or athleticism you can get out of Kyle Cuff than Joe Yesifu or, or something, and, and he's able to progress enough over what he did last year in his redshirt year over this offseason that Kyle Cuff all of a sudden does earn that second guard role. And, and that is, you're, you're talking about maybe 20 minutes per game. That, that's probably the realistic ceiling there. Um, I think more in my eyes, the realistic ceiling would that you don't beat out both, but maybe you beat out one of them and you're the third guard and that you you know are, are kind of playing that what you said earlier like the the kind of like Joe Yesifu role um 
prior to the Bobby Pettiford and Remy Martin injuries where, yes, we'd, we'd see him every now and then, but it wasn't ultra consistent. Um, but again, that's that's like the realistic ceiling that you could get those 20 minutes per game, at least for this year. Like if, if we're talking long term, like that's that's another another story. You know, you have high potential there with a guy who's athletic again at a, at a spot um, at a similar size that we've seen other KU guards be successful there. Um, but the other bit of ceiling comes from if KU primarily plays a two guard lineup. I think it's going to be tough when you think about all the good wings KU has just between if you're starting three wings like you did this past season between McCuller, Wilson, MJ Rice, Grady Dick, that's four really good wings that could eat up a lot of minutes. And then you have the the equation of KJ Adams playing on the wing as well. I think it's going to be hard for the two guard lineup to be the primary lineup for KU. I, I do think that they'll play the two guard lineup, but it might only be for who knows, 10, 15 minutes a game as opposed to like I said, 25, 30 minutes per game. But if that does end up being the case, if they find themselves to be better with the two-guard lineup, then all of a sudden you have more minutes, more of a spot to go out for those extra guards, which would certainly help in the competition for Kyle Cuff, and that would help kind of with the the ceiling talk here. Um, but as far as his play, what he can provide, like ceiling-wise, he can be a really good scoring punch, athletic, fun player, KU doesn't have maybe the biggest role for this year, but certainly over the course of the season shows enough promise, shows enough potential that you feel like he can be one of the next great KU guards. And it does become a little difficult as well when you think about it too, when you think about all the guards and go, well, Joe Yesvu could still have two more years and Bobby Pettiford could still have three more years and Dewan Harris could still have three more years that it does become a little more difficult to say, okay, well, even if the role isn't there this year, it'll be there next year or something. That's not guaranteed either. But if this guy is willing to stick around, because it might be a bit of an uphill climb with that depth chart. If he is able to get ahead of any of those guys or both those guys, that's great. And like I said, I like the potential of having a young athletic guard. Um, but hypothetically, if you did tell me Kyle Cuff is going to be here for three, four years down the road, I, th- I think you would really like what he's going to turn into. Yeah, I would agree. Just given the fact that he's also going to learn under the experienced guards in Yesifu and Harris, the fact that he'll learn so much and then just build off that athleticism, a guy that's six foot two but can drive the ball really well, really speedy, can have a good deal of hops just like Yesifu does, even though Yesifu is smaller. Um, I think it'd be great to learn under those guys. Well, at the same time, you know, Try to prove yourself in front of the coaches, get that playing time. I think Cuff will probably be a four-year guy at Kansas, given the starting rotation, especially in the guard spot over the next couple of years, if he could decide to stick it out and learn under these guys that KU has right now. But in that third or fourth year, he could be a national standout, I believe. So it, it always is impossible to figure out what, you know, get into the psyche of guys. If, like Mitch Lightfoot, for instance, Mitch Lightfoot stuck around KU constantly recruiting big man, you know, kind of over-recruiting him, um, bringing in other players at your position, whatever it is. But he stuck around because he liked being at Kansas. He was fine being a role player. He even redshirted his senior year so he could come back, and boy, did that work out coming because it gave him the extra year where he got to win the title this year. Some guys are cool doing that. Other guys, you know, it might be like, well, if it doesn't work for me in the first couple of years, I'm transferring out. Or, um, you know, uh, maybe there's a path for me to be a role player, but I want to be the starter on the team. I want to be the guy on the team. I don't know what it would be for Kyle Cuff and, and, you know, whatever he would decide to do, tip of the cap to you. 
But like I said, if he does stick around, I think he could turn into something pretty good for KU because we've seen that prototype work before. He clearly has the athleticism. Um, but if it doesn't work out and he can't get ahead of Bobby Pettiford and Joe Yesfu on the depth chart this year and it's a struggle to find playing time, then you wouldn't be mad at a guy for for wanting to see what other opportunities are out there either. But we'll wait and see. We Let's not put the, the cart before the, the wagon or whatever that saying is. Um, he's Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. KU has a new baseball coach, Dan Fitzgerald. Let's talk about it on the other side. KU has a new baseball coach, Dan Fitzgerald, comes over from LSU. He uh, has all sorts of experience beyond LSU as well, but um, was previously at Dallas Baptist. He coached uh, for nine years there. I guess he was a candidate, possibly a Baylor as well, which would obviously be a big deal uh, with another Big 12 team. That would kind of confirm that, yeah, he's he's ready for a Big 12 head coaching position. He uh, was hired by LSU on July 9th of 2021, so he spent one season with the team. But in that one season, he helped put together the number one ranked recruiting class as the recruiting director and assistant coach. That, according to perfectgame.org, Baseball America ranked LSU's 2022 recruiting class second and said that it could be the deepest class in America. It had 11 top 100 prospects. That was the most in the country. So clearly a good recruiter. Now, how well that translates to KU remains to be seen. Obviously with LSU, they have been one of the better programs in college baseball. They are seventh all time in college World Series appearances. They are second all time with six national championships. They play at a stadium that seats over 10,000 people. They have produced pro after pro in the MLB with Alex Bregman, Kevin Gossman, DJ LeMayhew, Aaron Nola, Austin Nola, so far uh, down the list, that how much of it is the coach doing recruiting, how much is it the program just recruits itself, and also you know the area when you have playing in Louisiana versus playing in Kansas where it's easier to play uh, throughout the year, not quite throughout the year, but you know uh, a little bit easier in Louisiana than it would be in the state of Kansas. How much is the recruiting go over again remains to be seen I, you don't expect him to come into Kansas right away and just fire off top five recruiting classes in the country but if he does come in and, and he recruits well enough to what KU's program is and, and can be that's obviously a huge hit for KU to be able to do that yeah without a doubt and I will, I will say that recruiting was one of the biggest struggles under Rich Price Rich Price he was a good uh, recruiter but I think that Dan Fitzgerald really tops that a little bit more in that Rich Price was more of a guy that was, you know, more of a, uh, how do I say that? He was a player's coach, but, like, the, uh, recruiting wasn't necessarily his top priority, which I can understand, but in the long run, that can hurt you. And I also know with the facilities that KU Baseball has, that recruiting has taken a bit of a dip, given that, let alone in the Big 12, but in the state of Kansas, uh, out of Division One schools, KU has the worst uh, college baseball facilities in Division One. You know, given that K State just had their renovations, Wichita State has been a powerhouse in college baseball history. So naturally, their facilities will be a lot better. Um, but with that recruiting, if you are able to get big time players and really make the Kansas baseball program strive and excel, I think a lot of good is in store for Kansas baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm I'm curious because obviously when you you hire a guy like this guy was at Dallas Baptist and then he goes over to LSU. LSU paid him three hundred thousand dollars a year to be an assistant there, which is a lot of money for an assistant in in college baseball. So obviously that tells me if if you're getting that guy to come over from there, um, there's a there's a probably pretty good financial investment. I have no idea like what the the top paying you know jobs in the country make as far as college baseball goes but you're probably given a good financial investment. To your point on the right. facilities, as much of anything that matters here, whether it's with recruiting and everything, like that has to be part of this as well. And I would imagine from Dan Fitzgerald's standpoint, I would imagine from KU's standpoint, they're probably sitting here going, this is the first part of some of the financial commitment we're willing to make to baseball. The facilities have to be part of it. And I'm sure for Dan Fitzgerald, he's saying, you know, if I take this job, I want to know that there's going to be financial commitments made to the facilities because right. um, again, like obviously uh, he is a, a great recruiter there. And the one thing that's, that's good to mention is that when he was at Dallas Baptist, which is a division one school, um, they actually, he uh, in 2021 led them to the number 14 ranking in the country. They were um, one run away from, or, or one victory away from reaching the college world series at Dallas Baptist. They were the surprise of college baseball last year, without a shadow of a doubt, and they proved their worth in the tournament. I think Fitzpatrick had a or is it Fitzgerald, yeah, Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald. Yeah. I I'm gonna have to really work on that. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I think Fitzgerald uh, had a lot to do with that, and just like any coach would, I think I, this is a good get. And yeah. I, you know, I've always had a lot of faith in Travis Goff. You know, the new the athletic director for KU. He has been for the past few months. Um, he's he's made a lot of good strides since he's come to KU, and I think this is another one of them. You know, we're we we're it's going to take some time to see if there can be a lot of improvements made. But I also know that improving the facilities, like you said, I know that, or at least I'm pretty sure that that is tra- one of Travis Goff's. I wouldn't say priorities, but it's at the top of his list. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Like you look at like the football stadium and and things like that. Like those are up there. But as far as like the Olympic sports go, like who knows? Maybe that's up there because you think about you know softball and and track and field and tennis and soccer. They have the new stadium out there at Rock Chalk Park, newish stadium. Um, volleyball got their arena fixed up a couple years ago, right? Like maybe that's next on the agenda for the Olympic sports. And, and yeah, you're right. Like Travis Goff has just hit home run after home run as far as these things have gone. He unintended? Is, uh, yeah, no, I <laughs> honestly, that time it was unintended. Um, uh, because he, he, I, I don't think it was, it was before he got hired that Bill Self got the extension, but it seems like the relationship there between Goff and, and Bill Self is good, so that's a positive. Um, obviously, you make the hire, Lance Leipold seemed like a home run. Um, this seems like a home run as well. He was listed number seven on the list of current assistants who would make the best head coaches in a 2020 survey conducted by Baseball America of 90 college head coaches. So that speaks highly to him. And also prior to Dallas Baptist, he coached at Des Moines Area Community College in Boone, Iowa. So that's doing something with less, as was Dallas Baptist. He coached there from 2008 to 2012. They averaged 50 wins per season. He reached the JUCO World Series four times. He uh, initially started his coaching career at the University of Iowa, also coached at Northern Iowa Community College and Flagler College. He's originally out of Minnesota. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I, I think, you know, you, you do have questions about, well, the, the recruiting will translate over just how much. Because, like I right. said, you don't expect the LSU recruiting level where you have all those things going for you to be number one. 
But if you can be the, I, I don't think there's a site that does like, I don't know, maybe like Baseball America or somebody does um, recruiting rankings for college baseball. Um, that if you can be the fifth best recruiting class in the Big 12 or something, like that would be a big win for Kansas. And, and get the program to a point where, like the program standards aren't that of like a Texas or a Texas Tech or, or whatever, like TCU, you know, t- your top tier baseball programs, Oklahoma State in the Big 12, where it's every year, let's make the NCAA tournament. We should be making the College World Series, whatever, once every four or five years, whatever it is. For KU, I think for baseball, it's almost like, can we make the NCAA tournament like once every four years, like wh- once right. every senior class? You know what I mean? Um, can we make a run to the Super Regionals once every couple of times we're in the tournament? Can we make the College World Series maybe once every decade or two, right? Like th- those would be cool things to happen. I-, I think that this guy can can hopefully get them there. That's, that's I'm sure, the idea here, but it's going to take more commitment from um, around the program as well. But the fact that he has been at all those different places – also, this isn't just a guy that was at one specific state. Like, he went from – it's not like he went from Des Moines Area Community College to going to Iowa State or something where it's all in that one region, right. and it's like he just had good ties in that region. He was in Des Moines, Iowa. He was in Dallas, Texas, and he was in uh, – where is it? Baton, Baton Rouge, Rouge, Louisiana. In the in the case of, like, Baton Rouge and Dallas, you're probably recruiting a similar pool of players – but those are three different locations that you have to establish new and different connections to the places you are recruiting at each one. And I'm sure, you know, when you have good relationships and you build them as coaches, there are going to be certain areas that you go back to and, and you know, you talk to guys and, and get recommendations and, and whatever else. The point is that I would have, I'd have zero... Um, I guess, worry that he would come here to the University of Kansas and not be able to make new establishments, new connections with guys in state, which that'll obviously be important. You know, baseball is not a fully scholarship sport, so you are more at, um, I guess, at, um, I don't know, you have to take on the guys who are in state a little bit more because if they're not on scholarship, having guys at in-state tuition, they're going to be more interested coming to your school than than going out of state if they're not on scholarship. Yeah, and there, are, there are a lot of Kansas natives on the Kansas baseball roster, which is not yeah. necessarily a bad thing. You know, no, no, I'm just saying, excel. like, it has to be. It has to be because right. um, if, if you're recruiting guys who are not coming on scholarship, for a lot of them, they're going to say, okay, then I want the, the option that's not going to cost me as much money. So that matters. So uh, the fact that he's been able to establish those ties, those local ties with other, other schools – Makes you think he'll be able to do that at Kansas, and the fact that he has those really good recruiting ties in those other areas makes you also think he should be able to get some pretty special players out of some of those areas like Texas, which is obviously a very talent-rich state for whatever sport you're talking about. He is Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depending on it. Did you know that on our website, klwn.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card to. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, Shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. Joined once again by a special guest, Ico Parr, assistant coach 
for Sporting KC2. They play on Friday at home here in Lawrence at Rock Chalk Park over at 7 o'clock. We're doing a ticket giveaway coming up after this interview live on the show. You can also uh, be a part of the ticket inter- or the uh, ticket sweepstakes, I guess you, I should say, on our social media account at RCST1320. Go over there, give the uh, tweet with the free tickets a retweet, give us a follow, and we're going to pick some random winners via social media. We're going to pick some random winners uh, via callers coming in in a second. Uh, so Ike... Obviously a big one for you guys uh, upcoming on, on Friday, taking on St. Louis. But I, I want to start where you were last week. You get a 1-0 win at Houston last week. Uh, always good when you come out with three points on the road. What would you like out of your team that led to the three points there? Yeah, really attitude because that game um, may as well have played on the sun. It was uh, 107, uh, feel like temperature. Um, you know, and our guys going into the week, they knew – Look, it's going to be uh, a test mentally, individually, and collectively. We're going to see where guys are. You know, I think it's important to know the the, the fortitude of a team, and and our guys went out there and showed that they that they can fight. Um, you know, in that kind of temperature and that kind of weather, you kind of know the soccer is going to suffer at times. Um, but the moments that we were able to play, you know, we we looked like we could, um, you know, be dangerous, and maybe we're just off in the final ball and the final pass, but. From the start to finish, we implemented the, the, the goals that we wanted to um, and ended up getting out of with the 1-0 win. So the guys really did the effort, and uh, we were proud to see them. Well, you mentioned the heat there, and it, it should be hot again this Friday night. Um, obviously, it helps that, that it's a night game at that point, but you know could get up to 99 degrees on, on Friday alone. So how do you kind of, kind of prepare for that? Is that just something that guys have to be hydrating throughout the week and you know you're, you, you might play a deeper bench? Is there any way to prepare for it? Yeah, I think, you know, look, I think a lot of these guys, too, you know, they're young, the, the, the new professionals, or some of them are academy, so they're learning um, kind of how to take care of the body. So they're experimenting in ways of, uh, how to be prepared. So we also know that that's a little bit of part of the process. But, you know, the, we, we all know that the, the weather's not going to change uh, moving forward. It's that time of the year here. So now, you know, guys are hopefully getting acclimated because our training times are in the middle of the day as well. So, um, you know, I think it's that first week or two that's the initial shock. That's tough. And then you, you, you adapt and acclimate. So um, moving forward, you know, it's not much, nothing we can really change. Um, it's just one of those things that we know it's, Part of living in the Midwest. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you get a clean sheet in that Houston match. Uh, first clean sheet in a handful of matches. What do you think of, of the defense's play and, and of the back line and, and the goalkeeper situation? Yeah, starting with the goalkeeper, you know, John made some big saves for us when, when, he, when his opportunity was called, or even just coming off his line and cleaning some things up was big for us. But, you know, we rotated 11 new guys for this game, and with that being said, all four four or five in the back line, um, we're all new. So, you know, when it comes down to that, it's a little, yes, we train together, but it's hard to get those training reps uh, or those game reps in training. And so, you know, we, we, we met as a unit and discussed all week kind of how we wanted to approach it. And the big one was communication, right? Knowing that, you know, guys aren't as accustomed to playing with each other. So let's try to minimize and mitigate mistakes by communicating. And, uh, you know, the guys, they were very aware. Houston is a, a bit of a direct team, but they're direct with a purpose as opposed to um, hopeful balls. They, they try to look for areas where they can spring guys in behind. And so, you know, the compactness of our, of our, of our back line was, for the most part, was very good. Um, the awareness of runners running through the midfield or from the second line and the forward line was, 
mostly pretty good. Um, and so we kind of, you know, took away their Houston strength. Um, and so it was good to see these guys being able to, you know, apply that game plan, um, all, all four or five new guys. We're talking with Igo Para here, the assistant coach for Sporting KC2. As I mentioned, uh, St. Louis is the opponent this week on on Friday, and the plan for them is is they're going to be moving up to the MLS can, after this year. Can, can you tell when you're playing against them that this is a team that that does have that MLS level of whether it's you know experience, play, talent, whatever it is, and and does that make for a unique challenge for you guys? Yeah, I think one of the last times we spoke, actually, I think it was getting ready for uh, the St. Louis game, and I think then I said, "Look, I think they're one of the best teams in MLS Next Pro because they have got experience. Obviously, they're going in MLS next year, so they're looking at more ready players to see who can make their roster. So they're a little bit more mature uh, as players and as uh, as young men. Um, and so that's kind of been the same ever since. They've they've been you know very consistent in what they do." Um, and that's a challenge for us, and I think it's a good thing. You know, I think we play in the best division in entire MLS Next Pro, so we're always going to get a challenge. We're always going to get a test, and you know, with St. Louis being one of the better teams, if not maybe the best currently, uh, it's going to be another measuring stick for us because we've been pretty good the last six games. Can we build that uh, against a very good team uh, this Friday? What schematically do they do that makes it challenging for you guys? And, and kind of the flip to that. What is something that you have to do well if you want to come out with possibly three points on Friday night? Yeah, I think for them, they they rely big time on the physicality of the game and the transitions of the game. So if we're not up for that, it, it could be a, a long night for us. Um, you know, they love their set pieces. They actually got a goal against us uh, when they won against us at, uh, a month or so ago. Uh, they won one zero on a set piece that we weren't really aware of. Uh, and we're an alert for. So we have to take those three things away from them. And I think on the flip side, what we can get them is, look, I think if we can figure out ways, we're, we're debating between a couple of different plans, but we've got to figure out a way to get them unbalanced because they like to be on the front foot. And, you know, they're a very good team when they're on the front foot. So I think there's a couple of different ways we can attack them. It's just a matter of what, hopefully we pick the right one. Mateo Bunbury is the team leader. He's got four goals in terms as that goes. He just had his 17th birthday, so you're talking a 16, 17-year-olds and already having that kind of impact. Uh, can you see a bright future for this youngster? Yeah. I mean, the sky's the limit for him. Just like all these young guys that we have, you know, he is a guy, especially when he's locked in, there's a great correlation between, you know, how he performs in training and how he does in the game. And, you know, when you see these moments, he's, he's got something that, you know, a lot of these guys his age don't have. But just like most people, he's got to get consistent. Um, and he shows the flashes, but he's made leaps and bounds the last, you know, three or four months since we've come up with the plan and routine for him to be strictly with our team and not have to bounce around as much as some other players and um, within the organization. And he's been, you know, a guy that um, ultimately has been, you know, reaping the rewards for some of the work that he's done. So hopefully he can continue going in that progress. And if he's shown um, anything, like he, if he's shown what he has in the last few months, we, it's, it's to be expected and, and more from him. He is Ike Opara, assistant coach for Sporting KC2, going out to the match Friday night, 7 o'clock over at Rock Chalk Park. It should be a really good, really exciting match. These are the uh, Sporting KC players of the future. And uh, stick around. We're going to be doing a ticket giveaway coming up on the next segment in addition to checking out our social media. Ike, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day, and good luck on Friday. No problem. Appreciate it. Thank you.
That's Ike Para. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. The U.S. Open starts up tomorrow. We've already had the first couple majors, the Masters, PGA Championship, U.S. Open, and then that'll be followed by the Open, or the British Open, as other people know it by. Uh, but the U.S. Open is always such a fun event. Personally, it's my favorite because it always seems like it's the most difficult. It's the toughest. Um, you know, it's the old joke of, like, why are people rooting for the course? It just makes it more fun to me when you see all these guys kind of struggling. It's like, oh, one of us, even though <laughs> even though they're still, like, way better. Um, so this is going to be played at the Country Club in Brookline. That's in Massachusetts. It, like most U.S. Open courses, plays tight. It um, has, you know, high roughs. It's, it's always difficult at the U.S. Opens. Uh, they, they make sure... It usually is that way, and that's the case once again here where accuracy is always key. Short game is always key in the U.S. Open. And specifically with this course, like this along with Pebble Beach up in Northern California is like those are some of the the tightest, some of the more difficult courses as far as they go for what we have out there for the U.S. Open. Now, at the same point in time, because um, I'm going to do some golf picks here after I get through this preview in a second. Um, you might be sitting there saying, okay, so you want guys who are accurate, guys who can hit it in the fairway, guys who can avoid uh, the the deep rough and can putt well and all those things. I mean, yes, that's true. But when I say accuracy and stuff is important, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be guys that are like that. Now, if you play that way, if you're – uh you know, someone like a Webb Simpson who maybe isn't the biggest bomber off the tee but does have great accuracy, like, sure, that helps you in this event. But at the same point in time, what we've seen from the past winners of the U.S. Open of late is it's guys who can hit the big, you know, drive uh, 320, 330, 340 yards, whatever it is, and that Maybe the the scouting report on their game isn't that they are the most accurate guy, that they are the best player with, with their short game, but they happen to do that for that specific week. You know, it's, it's, it's like in basketball, if, if you're seven feet tall and somebody else is five foot two, Maybe the five foot two person is a better three point shooter and better better dribbler of the basketball. But the seven foot person is going to be able to dunk. The five foot two person cannot. That is something the five foot two person will never be able to achieve. The seven footer can. You gotta have faith in the five foot two man, my guy. Well <laughs> yeah. Um I get what you mean though. The seven footer, hypothetically, if both of them attempt five three pointers. The seven foot two guy could just kind of get weirdly hot and hit three out of five randomly, right? He can do what the other person can do, not as consistently, but he can do it. Whereas the other person does not have that skill that the seven footer has, right? And yeah. that's that's how it is with golf. Um, guys who are very accurate, but maybe don't play it as far. You, you can't all of a sudden just come out and a guy who's hitting 260 on the drive go, okay, I'm going to hit 350 today, and we're going to change that around. So from that standpoint, even though, 
like accuracy is of the utmost importance for this week. It's not something that I'm necessarily highlighting and saying you have to always be accurate to win this event. No, if you're still somebody who can, you know, bomb the ball off the tee and everything, you just hope that they get hot if you pick them for that specific week. Um, but it's not just that. With, with how tight fairways have gotten, even a lot of the accurate players are hitting it into the rough. I mean, it, they have made it so difficult. And so with that happening, if both players hit it into the rough, who would you rather be? Would you rather be at the guy who hit it 300 yards in the rough or the guy who hit it 270 in the rough? It's going to be the guy who hit it 300 in the rough. Um, so 2016, Dustin Johnson won the U.S. Open. And obviously these are at different courses, so it, it doesn't always all apply. But typically they're they're cutting the grass and, and making the courses um, similar themes in terms of the difficulty. And again, Dustin Johnson, not known for being a guy uh, for his short game or for his accuracy. He's a bomber who sometimes gets hot with those other things. Brooks Kepka followed that up. He won twice. Again, Brooks a guy who can smash the ball. Not necessarily known for the putting or the short game, but he can get hot. Gary Woodland won at Pebble Beach, um, and that was fun. I was actually out at that one. And Were you really? Yeah, it was, wow. it was a lot of fun. Gary is same guy. I was known for being able to bomb it, inconsistent with the, the short stuff. Bryson DeChambeau, again, I mean, bomber of all bombers, but inconsistent with the other stuff. And then most recently, John Rahm. And John Rahm is just, like, great at everything. And that's the case with Dustin Johnson. Like, with Dustin Johnson and John Rahm, when they're working, they're, they're just, like, great at everything. But notably, both guys are bombers. Um, and in all of those cases, like, all of those guys either were playing really well so that the short game was working or they just got hot that week with the short game or with the putter or with the combination of the two. But they were all bombers. I think you have to have that in you, and that is what I'm going to pick, you know, when I'm going through the different guys that you can have for this. So um, I'm going to go through some golf picks here. Uh, I've got some picks to win. I've got some top fives, some top tens, some top 20s. I cannot wait for sports betting to be passed here in Kansas. <laughs> as far as the my picks to win, um, I got three picks. John Rahm has the highest odds or, or lowest odds, I guess, depending – what way you look at it, 13 to 1 uh, among my picks. Now, Rory McIlroy is the favorite. I'll get to him in a second. Um, John Rahm, like I said, he won this event last year. You're getting him at 13 to 1. He finished in third place in 2019, so more success here. And if you date it back to 2018, Rahm has been awesome in majors. He's appeared in 17 majors since 2018. He's got six top fives. He's got nine top tens. That means over a third of the time he's been in a major, he's been top five. I mean, that's that's really good. Um, over half of the time, he's been top ten. And so basically what that means, if you finish top ten in a tournament, yes, there are different top tens than others. Like some top tens come where you're hanging around the entire tournament and then you just finish eighth or ninth. Uh, some top tens come where you had a horrible first day, you barely make the cut day two, Day three, you make some move to where you're sitting like 30th or 25th. Day four, you finish out strong. You never really had a shot at winning, but you make a bunch of money and you earn your way into the top 10. So that's not always the case that if you get top 10 or, or whatever, that you were automatically in contention the whole way through. But 
typically, if you say you finished top 10, for the most part, that meant you were in contention to some level or some form. That means that he has basically, over the course of the last 17 majors, been in legit contention for half of them. And if you're picking a guy to win the event, whether he, he wins it or not, obviously you want to win your bet, you, you want to win your pool or whatever you're involved in, or whether you're just doing it for pride or whatever. But you, at the very least, want to be like entertained by it. You want somebody who is going to be in contention. You want somebody who is going to give you a chance on Sunday. And that's what John Rahm's going to do, more likely than not. Um, now, that hasn't always been the case this year. He has struggled a little bit more on the majors this year. Finished 27th at the Masters. He finished 48th in the PGA Championship. But look at what he did last year. He was top eight in every major, all four majors last year. He was top eight. He was nails. He won this event last year. I would not be I, – I, I normally don't love picking guys to win a tournament like back-to-back -back years or love picking guys to win back-to-back -back tournaments just because it's so hard. There's so many good golfers. It's such a big field. Um, but Brooks Kepka did, did it back in 2017, 2018. I'm going to go John Rahm for my first pick to win it. My second pick to win it is one of my favorite golfers just in general. That would be Xander Schauffele. Uh You can get Xander Schauffele at 20-1, to 1, which he's never won a major. So there there is that – you know, stigma or conversation about, well, can he get it done? And, and that stuff is there until it isn't. Um, this is his U.S. Open history, though, from 2017 till last year. This is really good. And, and that, by the way, that represents all his appearances. So that's not just me, like, cherry-picking certain dates. All of his appearances in the U.S. Open. Fifth, sixth, third, fifth, seventh. He has been right around winning Every single appearance in the U.S. Open. He just hasn't cracked through yet. And, and you can view it in, in the light of, again, like, oh, maybe something's missing there. He's a good enough golfer to get there, but maybe he doesn't have the stones to kind of get him over the edge. I kind of view it in the same light that we talk about with Bill Self. Like, he had the the losing record in the Elite Eight and had the struggles in the Elite Eight. I don't necessarily view it as, okay, what's, what's the issue in the Elite Eights? I think we've learned now just – Get enough shots, get enough cracks at it in the Elite Eight. Eventually, you're going to have some that go your way because sometimes it's just a dart throw and, and some things don't go your way. That's how I feel with Xander Schauffele. You keep contending and you keep getting top fives, top threes, top sevens. Eventually, one of these times, you're going to win. Eventually, you're going to have one extra shot that goes your way or one extra uh, shot from the opponent that goes against them that comes around for you. So Xander Schauffele has been money, and he's also playing really well. That's something else I look at. I like to look at form. And by the way, all these guys, like in the case of John Rahm, he can hit it really well. Uh, Xander Schauffele plays really well with uh, in terms of ball striking. Um, that's uh, something I'm really looking at here. Uh, last four tournaments, though, for Xander Schauffele. First, fifth, 13th, 18th. So four top 20s. He's in good form. He's played really, really well here. This is my favorite winner's bet for this at 20-1. to 1. My third bet... For the win is Brooks Kepka. You can get him at 40 to 1. Now, over the last two tournaments he's played in, he has not looked good. He's been 55th and he missed a cut in the last two. He's not healthy. That's been clear. We have not seen him in over a month, though, which, or, or about a month, which um, maybe he has healed enough. It, it at least makes me want to take the risk because in eight U.S. Opens, Kepka has two wins, three more top four finishes, two more top 20s. So seven of the eight, he's been in the top 20. Five of the eight, he's been in the top four, including those two wins. I don't love the health. I don't love the form. 
but because of that, you're getting him at 40 to 1. That's like an auto bet for me. That's like an auto fire if you say you can get Brooks Kepka at 40 to 1 in the US Open. And I'll take the risk because if it doesn't work out, it was kind of more of my long shot bet. If it does work out and he's in contention on Saturday or Sunday, you're going to feel great about getting him at 40 to 1. Moving from there, I'll go a little faster on these ones uh, into the top five. Xander Schauffele, uh, just kind of backing that up. Like I said, these are his finishes in his U.S. Open career. Fifth, sixth, third, fifth, seventh. That is three top fives with two others that just missed out on that. So I'm going to back up the bet at 4-1. to one. If you hit him at 4-1 to one to be top five, that pays for all of those bets that, that I made for the winner's bets. I'm also going to go with Rory McIlroy, top five. Uh, mentioned he's the favorite. You can get him for top five at plus 275. He is hot right now. He won the RBC Canadian Open. It was his fifth straight top 20 finish. He's also been top eight in four of the last five, and he's also finished top 10 in the last three U.S. Opens, where he has six top 10s and 13 starts, including a win in 2011. I would be a little tempted to take a top 10, but it's going closer to even odds. So give me the the plus odds at uh, plus 275 for him to finish top five because of how well he is playing right now. And I just, I don't love taking the favorite, uh, a guy who just won last week. The odds aren't great this week uh, for him to win, so I, I'd rather do that and just expect him to be in contention. Um, a little bit more of a long shot for top five. Mito Pereira, uh, you can get him at 9-1 to one to finish in the top five. If you remember, Mito Pereira was the guy who was winning the PGA Championship. He had an awful 18th hole. He ended up finishing third, didn't even make it a part of the playoff there. And you would immediately think, okay, clearly this guy, you know, that would affect your psyche. That would affect your mental approach to the game. The very next week, he played in the Charles Schwab, and he finished seventh. So I don't think it did affect him. I don't think he he let it linger very often. That tells me he does have the right approach, the right mentality to be able to play well in another major. He's hitting the ball about as well as anyone right now when you look at strokes gained and all those things um, that... I am just gonna. I think it'd be a fun storyline if he finished top five again. And nine to one, I like those odds a lot. I, I think if if he wins the PGA Championship, I don't know. Those might be three to one. Those might be four to one. Something like that. Uh, top ten bet. I'm gonna go Will Zalatoris. He's kind of like Brooks Kepka in that he has played unbelievable golf in the majors, but hasn't always done that in the other tournaments. Um, for for Kepka, it's because he doesn't really seem to care. For Zalatoris, I don't know what the reason is. Uh, Zalatoris did miss the cut at the last U.S. Open, but overall, he's been nails in those big events, like I mentioned. Last two Masters, he finished sixth and second. Last two PGA Championships, he finished second and eighth. At the 2020 U.S. Open, he finished sixth, and he's also finished top six in five of his last seven appearances. The other two were missing the cut, so it's a little bit of boom and bust there. I'm going to go with the boom. You can get a plus 330 to finish in the top 10. I honestly wouldn't mind throwing something at him at like 30-1 to to win, though, as well. Uh, Last two bets I have for top 20. Max Homa, you can get him at top 20 at plus 160. Valencia High School represent for Max Homa. Um, He's actually never made the cut in this event, which is why I'm not betting any higher, but he has made his last 11 cuts this year in tournaments. And as part of that, seven of his last 11 events are top 20s with two others in the top 25. So nine of 11 are top 25s. 
He also has a win at the Wells Fargo a little over a month ago. He's playing good golf. You can get plus odds, plus 160, a top 20. I like that. And like I said, Valencia High, represent. Uh, the last one I'm going to do, this is a little bit of a homer pick. Sprinkling on Gary Woodland, top 20. You can get him at plus 450. Now, he is not in great form right now. He missed the cut in three of his last four. He has also missed the cut in four of his last six. But he has three top 25s in his last five U.S. Opens, including his win. So it's a boomer bust pick. The two that um, he didn't finish top 25. I don't believe he made the cut. Um, but at plus 450 with KU ties, let's rock with Gary. Like I said, if you say three top 25s, that gets you in contention for a top 20. So in theory, it's a coin flip whether he'd be top 20, but you're getting instead of coin flip odds, plus 450 odds. I'll take that all day with Gary uh, to finish top 20 at the U.S. Open. By the way, this was perfect timing. Mm -hmm. I, I, was, uh, I just saw this on social media. You know, you talked about Will Zalatoris. He, he's your bet for finishing in the top 10. Mm -hmm. He is currently the most bet player to win the U.S. Open. Wow. Okay, that makes me not want to take him to win. Just take him for the top 10. Because <laughs> usually Vegas makes money, so if something is the most bet, that doesn't usually go well. Uh, we're going to take a time out here. When we come back, Michael Swain of Fog.net will join us. But real quick, before we go to break, we're giving away some Sporting KC2 tickets. We gave away some on social media already. You can still enter in for that at RCST 1320. If you want to get a couple tickets for free on Friday night, they're taking on uh, St. Louis, who is going to be a future MLS team Friday night here in Lawrence at Rock Chalk Park. Free tickets, 7 o'clock. Give us a call, 785-843-1321. 785-843-1321. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. We'll be back after this. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear. Plus, they re look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK. That's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. About 20 till 5, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Joined now by Michael Swain of Fog.net 24-7 Sports here on RCST. KU has landed five commitments for football over the last uh, week and a half, week or so. For the class of 2023, um... Well, most of them. There was the 2022 uh, Juco kid. They didn't have any in tow previously, so I want to kind of go through some of these with you. Uh, let's start at the receiver position. Uh, they've had three additions there for the class of 2023. Keaton Kubeka, Jared Sample, Siraz Bunkum. He's listed as an athlete, but I, I'm kind of under the assumption that's receiver as well. Uh, what can this trio provide for KU in the future? Yeah, I think it's very interesting because I think they all kind of bring something different to KU, and I think there's a world in which you could envision, you know, all three guys being on the field at the same time at some point during their KU career. I think Siraz Buncombe might have the highest ceiling of the three, just because you look at him in terms of his frame. I mean, six foot four, you know, he's one seventy five right now. You'll expect him to put on weight when he gets in college and work with Matt Gildersleeve, but he runs real fast. He ran a ten five eight. 100 meters in California, um, which is super fast, especially for someone that is six foot four, 
got a really long catch radius, someone that I think is going to be really good going up for 50-50 balls. And I think for KU fans, I think about him, you know, Bunkum being someone that has maybe a little bit of a skill set like Lawrence Arnold, but maybe a little faster. And so I think you think about what Lawrence Arnold has been able to flash at times in terms of catch radius, catching the ball, then add some speed to that. I think that's what Bunkum is. Then you look at someone like Keaton Kubeka, maybe not as fast as Bunkum, but maybe more physical, right? He's, you know, 6'2", just shy of 200 pounds, and plays for one of the best high school teams in the country in the state of Texas in Austin-Westlake. And he's one that I think could probably come in of the three and play probably the quickest, just because I think his game is probably the most refined. His body fits that of probably a college wide receiver. Um, of course, probably will add some more weight when he gets to school. Um, but it's more of like a yards after the catch type of guy. And then obviously Jared Sample being um, someone that could be used in the slot, but has some physical attributes to where maybe you see him outside from time to time. And he's someone that has track times that are closer to Bunkum than to Keaton Kubeka's. So I think overall you've got three wide receivers that all bring you a different skill set that you can either A, mix or match, or B, kind of have on the field at the same time if you want to run with a three-wide receiver setup. Well, and with Lance Leipold making that comment earlier this offseason about you know feeling mm. overbooked on scholarships at the receiver position, um, do you kind of view them taking those three guys for the class of next year? Like, is this something about uh, just expecting more attrition at that position? Is it that they've already, you know, uh, I guess lost enough scholarship guys there in the portal, or is this just something where it's just, hey, those guys are are so good, like we value them so much on our board that we're just going to take them and, and we'll figure out the rest later. Yeah, so I think the initial plan was to bring in two wide receivers, um, and then another spot opened up, and they decided to take a third. And so I think you look at the wide receiver room under Les Miles and Emmett Jones, and it's different skill sets, guys that were made. Um, frame-wise and skill set-wise for kind of the spread offense that KU was going to run under Brent Deeran and Emmett Jones. But then now with Lance Leipold, this staff wants maybe a more physical brand of football where they're going to play that outside zone run scheme and they want those wide receivers to be able to block and be a little bit more physical. So I think you're starting to see the coaching staff with these three guys, with Douglas Amelian that they brought in from Minnesota in the transfer portal, they're starting to construct this wide receiver room kind of in their view. So it wouldn't shock me if you see more attrition next offseason with wide receivers who maybe learn that, oh, we've got guys coming in that the staff likes, and I didn't play that much in 2022, so maybe I should probably move on. So I think it's probably a mixture of kind of a, a lot of things that created this kind of spot where say, you could take three. On the defensive side of the ball, Taylor Davis comes in at safety. That one happened last week. And then uh, the newest commit, Tony Terry, on the defensive line. Um, for Terry specifically, he's – now the highest-rated recruit for KU in the 24-7 database, 6'5", 245. Uh, does that kind of lend to him filling out more and eventually being you know, 6'5", 280 or whatever, uh, being an interior guy, or, or is he more of an edge player? Yeah, so I think he's going to be, you know, KU talks about his two defensive ends. They've got kind of a stud end that plays on the strong side. I think he fits that perfectly. I got to watch him in person at a kind of UC report camp showcase type of deal in Kansas City back in April. And that was back when, you know, you mentioned him being the highest rated guy in the class. Well, this was back when his rating was like an 82, I want to say. And watching him in person then was a lot more refined and I think was better than that rating showed. And, you know, we've adjusted it since now that we got more eyes on him. But I think his ceiling is very high as well. You look at kind of the skill set that he does have where, you know, you can add more weight to his frame where 
he's 245 right now, but if you look at him in person, you look at him and think, oh, this guy's probably 230, 235. Like, he does not look like a 245-pound guy, yet he is. And I think that shows you that he's someone that can put on a lot more weight and get up and be one of those really, really big, strong defensive ends that can play on the strong side of KU's defensive front. So I'm a huge fan of this addition. And even though he doesn't have a ton of Power 5 offers, um, Kansas State offered him. He had a load of interest, and I think that as more schools got to see him this summer, whether it be through camps, showcases, or just visits getting him on campus, I think more offers were going to come. So I really do like the pickup for KU. What would you say at this point? It's obviously still very early, um, and I don't know how what the intention of how many scholarships they plan to use on high school versus the transfer portal and everything, but what would you say so far seems to be the – the emphasis or, or the theme so far among the class of 2023 commits for KU? I think they're just, you're seeing the KU staff go after guys that fit their identity and the brand of football that they want to play, which is a physical brand of football. Um, I think you see with those three wide receivers, Taylor Davis is an incredibly physical and very violent safety. Um, I can't remember if we talked about last week, but super high character guy as well. I think that's the thing that stands out about all these guys. They come from really successful programs for the most part, right? You think about the three wide receivers, all three of them come from very, very successful programs in their respective states. Taylor Davis comes from another successful high school program. Um, I'm not as familiar with Tony Terry's high school, but he is someone that, you know, it seems like a high-character guy if you talk to people that know him. So I think overall you're seeing you go after guys that are all about physicality, high character, and I think the question is, you know, what sort of offensive linemen and what more defensive linemen can you bring in um, because I think that those are kind of the positions now that you're looking at and saying, all right, so you probably need to continue to build out the roster in your vision with those positions because those are the ones you probably take the most of each cycle. We're talking with Michael Swain of Fog.net. There's a couple quarterback targets for KU right now who are going to be making decisions coming up soon, and, and there's one actually coming today, Karen Wiseman. Um is KU in a good spot to pick up a quarterback? Is that the idea there to bring on one guy just to kind of add some some more bodies in that room starting next season? Yeah, I think so. Um, overall, I think it's probably maybe too early to say specifically if they've narrowed down on one guy that they really want. You know, Casey Wiseman, I mentioned I, like 30 minutes ago, maybe he tweeted out he's not going to renounce the top schools. I think that, you know, he's still going to think about things. And I think Katie wants to see him in person before maybe making him one of these, you know, the number one guy on our board that we want at quarterback. So I think that you look at the camp today, they have three quarterbacks there that they wanted to see in person, um, two of which did not have an offer. Um, the one that did being Hayden Oviat, who's a local kid from Wamego. And then, of course, Jason Wiseman will be there next Friday to camp so that you can get some eyeballs on him. So I think quarterback for me is a really fascinating position. Um, I think it's not super solidified who maybe their number one target is at the moment. Right, well, if you end up going out to Wamigo for um, some reason to go, you know, scout that kid or something, I recommend the peanut butter cinnamon roll at the uh, Friendship oh. House. Um, okay, uh, I've got some either ors for you here. More KU football commitments from today till the end of the month, or more Power Five wins for KU football in twenty twenty two. Give me the commit. Okay. I think you're going to get a. I think KU gets a commitment tonight. I think think KU probably gets at least maybe two more before the end of the month. And I think we've talked about this plenty. You know, I think KU beats Tennessee Tech. I think that they beat Duke. 
And then it's a question of can you beat one Big 12 team during the regular season, and that'll get you your two Power 5 wins, I think. That's kind of my thought process, at least, and I feel probably more comfortable saying that that commit thing is going to hit. Uh, by the way, I, I don't know if this is something like you've kept track of or, or noted, but obviously they, they had, what, eight visitors in tow last weekend and already uh, a handful of them have committed to KU. Is, is that normal to have that high of a, I guess, success rate on getting guys to commit off a visit? Not necessarily. I think you got to give this staff a ton of credit, and I'll probably end up writing about it at some point, but not every school has visits that go like that. You know, I was lucky enough to cover, I think, Iowa State last year, and they had a, a wave like that. Not immediate, because they think a lot more kids took all their visits last year, but had success like that. And I think this staff is very similar to that Iowa State staff in the genuine approach, in the ability to connect with recruits. And so I think I was honestly maybe even a little bit surprised at the number of guys that committed off of that weekend. Um, I thought that more maybe would take their time and take more visits, but I think the staff did an incredible job that weekend. So I think it was more out of the ordinary than anything that a school like Kansas has a weekend like that that reaps so many commitments. Like Alabama can have a weekend like that, sure. So can Ohio State. But for a school like Kansas to do that, I think it's very impressive. Uh, okay, uh, some basketball ones. More points per game for Grady Dick or Kevin McCuller? Give me Kevin McCuller. I think that he's going to play a ton, and I think that this offense could fit him in terms of the slashing, his ability to kind of finish around the rim. And I think in the end, you're going to see someone like Grady Dick average like 11, 12 points a game. And I think you're going to see Kevin McCuller average 12 or 13 points a game. I think it's going to be super close, but I think McCuller might just end up playing more minutes, which makes me think that he's going to have a better opportunity to maybe reach that total. More minutes per game, Kyle Cuff or Cam Martin? Um... Probably Kyle Cuff. I think you look at the big man spot, and there's just so many bodies there and so many guys that you look at and saying, what do they bring? Can they compete at the Big 12 level? And I just am, I have my concerns about Cam in that regard. I think you look at the guard spots, and it just seems like if Bobby Pettiford can't get healthy, then there's more of an avenue to playing time for someone like Kyle Cuff. More Draymond Green technicals in Game 6 and Game 7 or KU Top 25 wins in football the next two seasons? <laughs> I love this one. Um, give me KU Top 25 wins. Draymond's not getting a check tomorrow night. Uh, what is your confidence level? I, obviously, you're a Warriors fan. What's your confidence level closing things out in Game 6? I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good. I think the Celtics look tired. Um you just need, I, and also, I think that for me, like you look at Steph Curry, if Steph Curry has that game and the Warriors win, I think that just shows you everything. That, that was the game the Celtics had to win if Steph Curry shoots like that. And I don't see him shooting like that next game or over the next two games combined. Yeah, what do you make of Andrew Wiggins? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. No, you're good. Gonna, like, like, what do you make of, of Andrew Wiggins in, in terms of. Like, do you think this is just we, we didn't realize he was this good because of the situation he was on and, and we've always just wanted him to, you know, the expectation was, oh, he can be the next Kevin Durant or LeBron James or name whatever big player. Is it that and that he was always this? Or, like, had you seen this growth from him specifically in his time with Golden State? Yeah, I have a little bit where I think you see the attention to detail. And I've I listened to a couple like beat writer podcasts from the Warriors beat writers, and they talk about 
Wiggins and the attention to detail and the winning culture in Golden State and how that's kind of bred much more attention for Wiggins, whether it be defense on the defensive side or even not shooting as many mid-ranges. Like, a lot of these shots for Wiggins in the finals are coming at the rim or they're at, you know, behind the three-point arc. You're not seeing a bunch of these turnaround fadeaway jumpers that you saw in Minnesota. So I think his growth has been awesome. And I think it's great to see for a player like Andrew Wiggins, who I think maybe was slandered at times during his, you know, Minnesota time. You know, you think about the Jimmy Butler stuff and all that. So I think really happy for him. But I think it's just the attention to detail that kind of comes from being a part of a uh, a winning, winning kind of team like the Warriors. Would you have believed me if before this NBA season started, I would I would tell you that Andrew Wiggins would be the second best player on a Warriors team that was a, a win away from winning the NBA championship? I'd be if, if you told me that, I'd say, well, the Warriors are going to get swept. Um, <laughs> I you know I just do not I did not see this coming. I thought great if Wiggins is the third, fourth best player on your team. That's awesome. But for him to be the second best guy, like Jordan Poole not really showing up, Clay Thompson being hot and cold, Draymond being awful, like it's incredible to see. And so I would not have expected it. He is Michael Swain. You can check out his work. Subscribe to Fog.net through 24-7 Sports. Michael, appreciate the time as always, man. Definitely. Thanks. Always enjoy it. That is Michael Swain, Fog.net. Go give it a subscription. It's uh, well worth it. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk, two hours down, one to go. We will have some uh, Kevin McCuller audio coming for you next and then a little College World Series talk. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it.